You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. Welcome, everybody. This is Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. Along the way, we talk to some of the most interesting visionaries about the world we live in and the worlds they are creating for tomorrow. You know, I attend all kinds of conferences, you know, a lot about technology in the future, but also about everything else. And also, uh, today, all of us have access to the most interesting thinkers through YouTube. But many of these speakers really have little that is original to contribute. On this show, uh, we try to bring you truly original thinkers, and I'm excited to have just such a person, John David Ebert. Ebert is a cultural critic who, after studying English literature at Arizona State University, worked for the Joseph Campbell Foundation doing editorial work on Campbell's posthumous books. And since then, he's been writing his own books, beginning with Twilight of the Clockwork God. And he did something really clever with that book. He interviewed all the people he was interested in. And that way, it's a great book, but it also uh, got him to meet people like Deepak Chopra, William Irwin Thompson, Stan Groff, Terence McKenna. So we'll get to more of Ebert's books in a few minutes. But John, or should I, I'm going to call you Ebert, and then you can call me John. So Ebert, how are you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Great. So, listen, um, uh, some years ago, I heard you give a lecture about your experience with uh, Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 movie, Apocalypse Now, and a scene right. in which there were two books. Tell us about that. Well, um, Apocalypse Now was uh, one of my favorite films as a kid growing up. I, I first, it came out when I was 11 years old. And ever since then, I had seen it many times. Uh, by the time I was in college, though, um, I, I was literate enough to pay careful attention to the scene uh, near the end of the film when they're in Kurtz's uh, sort of bedchamber and the camera pans by one of the shelves. And on that shelf is uh, our two books. One is The Golden Bow uh, by James Frazier, and the other is uh, From Ritual to Romance by Jesse L. Weston. Now, I happened to be uh, reading The Wasteland in college, in a college course at just the same time, and then when you flip to the back of T.S. Eliot's notes, he's got the same two books referred to. And I thought, well, this can't be a coincidence. So I went and I got both books, um, and I read through them. And reading The Golden Bow, and, you know, my normal preference, preference was for reading fiction, up to that point. So the, the Golden Bough was more or less the first work of nonfiction that I actually sat down and read. That's a good and, place to uh, start. It blew my mind. <laughs> sure. Uh, it, all these myths, and, uh, you know, and it added this whole new dimension to the, the ritual bull slaying of Kurtz, you know, at the end of the film. And uh, Frazier talks about how that myth 
takes place all over the world where the king would be killed or a substitute bull would be slain uh, in his honor um, all over the world. And so, um, so right at the so, so hang on, Hebert, hang I'm on. Sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, so right at the moment where the assassin kills Marlon Brando, we cut to the bull being beheaded in the movie. So it's right. a perfect segue for these books. Yes, exactly. And uh, the other thing that happened was uh, right at the same time on PBS, they were showing the Bill Moyers interviews uh, with Joseph Campbell, uh, The Power of Myth. And um, <clears throat> I, it was very difficult for me to understand what he was saying in that, but what he was saying uh, resonated with me in the sense that um, I'd been interested in stories all my life, and here was somebody who knew the inner mechanisms of how stories work. And uh, I realized that I had to read him. And so I went out and I got uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and I read through that, and then I read uh, Primitive Mythology. And uh, sure enough, in Primitive Mythology, there are references to the Golden Bough. Um, and he kept referring to this guy, Oswald Spangler, Oswald Spangler. And he kept mentioning him over and over, and, and uh, all through the Masks of God. So I went to the library on campus and uh, dug up this Oswald Spengler guide, Decline of the West. And I opened it up and I turned to the charts in the back of the book, and the charts themselves blew me away. Here was this whole, uh, you know, morphology of civilization and how it works, and he had it all mapped out. Uh, you know, he had identified nine separate uh, civilizations with a morphology uh, to each of the civilizations. They, they, they each go through, like a living animal, they each go through uh, the same morphology with, you know, three er uh, culture phases, an early culture phase, a pre uh, or pre-culture phase, an early culture phase, late culture phase, and then finally a, a decadence into what he calls civilization. And civilization did not have uh, positive connotations for Spangler. For him, it meant uh, a vast, impersonal uh, megalopolis uh, where all the traditions of the culture are dying and all the myths are dying. And I realized that that was where we were at, um, and it also made me realize why my college education was such a bad one. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it was just, there was just such a paucity of good books. We weren't reading the classics anymore. We were reading textbooks. And um, so all of those things sort of resonated and started to come together for me in, in uh, my last couple of years of college there. That's fantastic. Let's just for a moment uh, uh, go back to the movie. Do you think Coppola was conscious of what he was doing with these uh, having um, Kurtz reading from the uh, T.S. Eliot and showing these two books, etc.? Uh, no, I'm, I'm having trouble hearing you, uh, John. I, I didn't catch the question. Do you think uh, Francis Coppola was aware of what he was doing when he had the um, uh, showed those two books? I, I, I don't think he did. I, I get the impression from reading the biographies that he wasn't sure how, how to end the movie. And um, John Milius had a ridiculous ending, uh, Kurtz going out Rambo-style shooting at helicopters, uh, and Coppola knew that wasn't going to work. Um, and I think there was a staff member, I can't recall his name, right? it's on the tip of my tongue, uh, there was a staff member who, who was familiar with all that stuff, 
who said, well, what you have here is the granddaddy of all myths. You know, this, it's, it's the, the, you know, Kurt should be ritually slain, uh, and it should be intercut with a bull sacrifice. And Coppola realized that he was correct mm. and um, put that on as the ending of the film. Now, Coppola is an intuitive genius. He sort of works, you know, as he goes along, he, he makes it up. He r- writes the screenplay, you know, on the day of the shoot <laughs> for that day, uh, to, much to the actors. Uh, Kubrick does the, 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 was known to do the exact same thing, uh, driving the actors mad. But um, uh, he's you know, an intuitive type of filmmaker, and if you look at the entire rest of the film, clearly Coppola had an artist's understanding of myth that was innate. He, he, he just did. I mean, there's myth all the way through that film. Right, right. Uh, and the structure itself is mythical. I mean, it's a journey down, it's a sort of modern uh, updating of Dante's journey through the Inferno. It gets darker and darker, more and more uh, savage and, and barbaric and primordial as the film unfolds. Right. So, uh, so now we've gone from uh, the Golden Bough and from Myth to Ritual and from there, you uh, read Spengler and then Campbell. Uh, tell us more about um, Spengler's structure of history. Yeah, well, uh, Spengler's structure of history, he sees nine big civilizations. And, and um, in the decline of the West, he wasn't so much interested in, in, in any of the pre-civilizations. Um, he was later. Uh, at the end of his life, he was at work on a book about prehistory. But um, during the the high period of his of his career and his writing, uh, and he was a high school teacher. He eschewed academe. He didn't like academics, and he was a high school teacher. And like Nietzsche, uh, he had a trouble with migraines, so he went on a disability at some point while he was finishing up *Decline of the West*. And it took him about four or five years to write it. And so he's got nine distinctly different civilizations, the Russian civilization, the Indian civilization, the Chinese civilization. Um, and the, with the West, um, things get a little bit more complicated. He's got the classical civilization, by which uh, he means the Greek and, and the Roman civilization. And then he has the Northern European civilization, what he calls the Faustian civilization. And then sandwiched in between these two civilizations uh, is one of his real innovations, is the, the Levantine civilization, what he calls the Magian or Arabian civilization, by which he means the three great Abrahamic religions, but also Zoroastrianism and the late Byzantine civilization. He says that there's a civilization that that exists in between those two that scholars just didn't see because of a phenomenon that he calls a pseudomorphosis. And a pseudomorphosis is a term that he borrows from geology, which is when you get a false formation in the sense that um, you have a rock and you break the rock open and there's a different rock on the inside of the outer rock. Hmm. So he says, well, this is what happens when civilizations lie so heavily over the landscape that a newborn civilization and he saw the biblical civilization as the newborn civilization coming into being, can't quite get its footing, and so it has to express itself through the dying form language, as he puts it, of the, uh, in this case it would be the Hellenistic Roman civilization that was, that was dying out. And so he says, well, really, the Pantheon is the first mosque. That's the first building to have uh, a cavern style to it, that the mosque later, all mosques are basically caves. Uh, but that is the first one, 
and it's totally alien to all traditional forms of Greco-Roman architecture, which are basically all exterior. Uh, you get a colonnade, maybe with a uh, an interior with a gods, you know, on the inside, but it's mostly an exterior affair. But that is the first mosque, and he goes from there, and he says Diophantus invents a new form of mathematic at the same time, algebra, uh, which is he lays out the basis with the Diophantine equations. They're totally different from Euclidean geometry, um, and so each of these civilizations has its own. Uh, it, it, its own idea of being, to, to borrow from Heidegger, it, it has its own idea of being, its, its own uh, way of looking out on the world and expressing itself. And for the Greco-Roman civilization, the body was everything, the actual tangible, physical, human body. And even their theory of atoms, atoms are just basically miniature bodies, like uh, billiard balls colliding uh, against each other. Uh, whereas the Northern European Faustian civilization... Uh, its idea of being is that of infinite space. Um, and even our atoms have a sense of infinite space about them. They're like miniature cathedrals. Um, and the cathedral, uh, the architecture expresses the being idea the best. So, so you've got the cathedral versus the Doric uh, temple. And then in between you've got uh, the sense of the world as a cave. So let me... the Magian Arabian biblical world. Right. Everything's a cave. They even bury their dead in caves in this civilization. And um, so those are the three different being ideas of the three Western civilizations. But each one of the civilizations has a being idea that is established in its early period, gets worked out over time, uh, and then gets exhausted. And by the time it gets exhausted, it starts losing its formal possibilities and declines into a megalopolitan, uh, uh, what Toynbee called a universal state. And it becomes uh, purely imperialistic and begins to die out and lose the original inspiration that animated it. So what does this approach tell us about our world today? Well, it tells us where we're at. I mean, it gives us a, a model. I think that um, there are so many similarities between where we're at now and with ancient Rome, especially Rome in the days of the dying republic and uh, its transition through the civil wars um, with the first and second triumvirates and on into the Battle of Actium, which is the final decisive battle, and then you get the Empire and the Pax Romana that comes after it. I think today uh, what we have is uh, American civilization fulfilling the role that the Roman civilization fulfilled. It's megalopolitan. It's very impersonal. Uh, it has no regard for its own traditions, um, which most of which it's, dis it's already dismantled. Um, the idea of believing in God is regarded as ridiculous if you're a city person uh, and only country people, bumpkins, uh, you know, go to church and believe in God and live out in the countryside. Um, see, piety for Spangler is connected to uh, the countryside. It's connected to people living in the soil, piety and tradition. And uh, it's not just farmers. It's, it's townsmen, people of small um, artistic worlds. See, the difference between uh, a civilization in the state of culture, what he calls culture, and that uh, in the state of civilization is that you get small provincial cities, let's say like Bruges or, or Flanders, that are um, they're mercantile. Uh, the, the mercantile class has come in, uh, but they're works of art unto themselves, and the values are metaphysical and artistic. 
the city has not been allowed to take over yet. But by the time you get to monstrosities like London and Paris and New York and Berlin especially, uh, which Spengler hated, by the time you get to these kinds of uh, megalopolitan monstrosities, there's a lot, there's, there's a general spread of atheism and a loss of respect for tradition and uh, an impersonality and a concern with money. Money uh, becomes the overriding primary concern, so you get economics replacing metaphysics. Um, and I think we can see a lot of that going on. To, to this day, I think Spengler's book remains, it was written in 1918, and I think it remains uh, more relevant now than it, than it was then. Right. Because now we can see we're a century later, and we can, we can see where it's almost exactly 100 years since he wrote it, and now we can see the, the predictions that he made actually coming to pass. The, he says in this late civilization period, the, you know, artists were replaced by engineering. And here in New York now we're getting these apartment buildings that are like half again as tall as the Empire State Building and are springing up all over the city. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And the Romans had those too. They had uh, what were called insuli, in uh, the, the large uh, apartment buildings. They were nowhere near as... as you know, tall as, as ours, but they were multi-tiered, and, and they would often collapse because they were so badly yeah. engineered, and they were just teeming human antibes. Yeah. So um, uh, let's go from Spengler to Campbell, and, and as, you, uh, as you indicated, Campbell describes himself as influenced by Spengler, and, you know, he describes... Uh, wooing his wife by uh, giving her a copy of Spengler to read when she went returned home right. uh, during school. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so uh, how would you describe uh, Campbell's approach to culture? Well, uh, yeah, it is very Spenglerian. Uh, it's, it's morphological in the sense that Campbell is interested in the internal forms of all the world's religions. And so what he does is... Uh, with Spengler in the back of his mind as, as the basic model for history, he goes through and he does a survey of all the great world religions, but he embeds them. He has an interest in the ecology that, that produced each one of these great world religions, and he gives, he has his, he sort of divides the world up into what he calls the signatures of the four great domains, where he has uh, for China, you have the wandering sage, the Lao Tzu type figure. And for India, uh, the eyes are closed and you have the Buddha, uh, the world is a dream. And then for uh, the Levant, you have Job. Job is the figure who submits. Uh, the ultimate, uh, you know, Islam means to submit. And uh, there's a consistency there from, from the, the, the Hebraic tradition down to the, the, the Islamic world. Uh, Job is the one who submits to the wrath of, of God. Whereas in the, in the West, um, he sees the West guided by the Promethean archetype, uh, in which Aeschylus' play, Prometheus Bound, he, Aeschylus has Prometheus saying, I don't care for Zeus, he can do as he likes. And there's just this sense of total defiance uh, toward tradition, uh, toward authority, that tends to characterize the West and has characterized the West from the Greeks onward. Um, so there's a kind of morphological approach there. You can see the influence of Spangler in these four being ideas that he has. Um, so there's that aspect to it. Uh, 
Interesting. So let's let's for a moment look at uh, your own books, and let's start with uh, what were you trying to do in um, um, what was the, the first book you did where you were interviewing people? Twilight God, of the yeah, Clockwork the, God. What right. were you trying to do in that book? Well, now in that book. Um, Campbell had made a few references to a couple of scientists that he liked, like Rupert Sheldrake was one. Um, and Bill Moyers had asked him about the Gaia hypothesis, and he seemed to be sympathetic to that. So I wanted to find out who, who were the architects of these ideas, morphogenetic fields, which, which Campbell liked very much, because he thought that the idea of the morphogenetic field was a Western equivalent to the Hindu idea of Maya, uh, the, the form-producing field. Um, and that was Rupert Sheldrake's idea. Um, so I wanted to interview these guys and find out um, what uh, – they were scientists and or New Age thinkers, but, but they all represented a different domain or discipline. Uh, Deepak Chopra, for instance, has now become a big New Age thinker. But back then, when I interviewed him, he was a perfect exemplar of the field of medicine and the influence of Indian spirituality on the field of medicine. If you read Deepak Chopra's early books – they're very good, and they're full of uh, very good, well-documented case studies. Uh, I think the moment of his decline came when he went on Oprah, and I, mm -hmm. I think that was it for him. But uh, the, the early Chopra was what I was after. And Stanislav Grof for the field of psychology, I wanted somebody there who had an understanding and respect for myth. Um, and Terrence McKenna, whose uh, ethnobotanical approach I didn't really care for, but I did see it as a kind of modern equivalent of shamanism. Um, so I went through all these people and I interviewed them looking for a cosmology. I was now at this point uh, in search of uh, a cosmology, some, something that would make sense out of the contemporary world uh, that Spengler had already identified for me as in decay, as disintegrating, and that Campbell had identified you know, all the great religious forms were also disintegrating. And I wanted to know what was integrating, what was coming up out of all of this. And so I went looking for these individuals, uh, Lynn Margulis, with her, who was the co-architect of the Gaia Hypothesis, and all of her wonderful studies of, uh, of bacteriology, you know. Uh, she figured out uh, the endosymbiosis theory, that bacteria swallow bacteria, uh, other bacteria and don't digest them, so they become the chloroplasts in and in, uh, in uh, animal cells and they or they, in plant cells and mitochondria and animal cells and so forth. And so it gradually began to look like there was a, a sort of a cosmology forming. So I put all the interviews together and I put it out as my first book in 1999 as this sort of conversation with these individuals. And William Owen Thompson was was another one of these individuals. He was in there. At your recommendation, as, as a matter of fact, mm. you, you were the one who turned me on to William Irwin Thompson. I remember our conversation where you said, you know, uh, William Irwin Thompson is interested in the scientific aspects of myth, and, and he looks at myths, and he sees all these other things that Campbell missed, uh, and you should read him. And I did read him, and he, he also blew me away. It was like reading Spengler and, or, or Campbell all over again. It was just an amazing experience. Right. So he was the first one that I interviewed, actually, for that collection. So I wasn't going to do it without interviewing him. <laughs> <laughs> how would you summarize what your conclusion was for that book? That the universe is um, a place that is full of spiritual energy, 
and it's not um, it's not something that's that's just made up out of matter and particles and and the four fundamental forces, but that there is something else going on. There's some kind of intentionality involved in all this. There there is um, some kind of a guiding force or hand or shaping force. Um, I have since come. Uh, back then, I didn't, but I have since come to believe in in God, you know, for instance, and the survival of the soul after after death and in reincarnation and those things. Um, just doing my own independent research, I didn't believe believe those ideas back then. But back then, it just seemed to me to be that the cosmos. I could sense that there was intentionality here. You can you can sense that just with the Gaia hypothesis, with the planet having its own homeostasis, its own ability to. Uh, regulate the the salinity levels in the ocean and the, the albedo in the clouds and just to you know and the oxygen concentration at twenty one percent over uh, millennia and it somehow knows how to do this to keep conditions optimal for life. Right. So I would say that's the upshot of the book was was the realization that nature's full of all this intentionality and something larger is going on. Great. So what was your next book after that? Uh, that would have been uh, uh, the book I wrote about movies, Cellular Heroes and Mechanical Dragons. So this is now looking for the mythology of our time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, um, uh, I had had the idea to write a book about myths and movies, and it was further strengthened by reading a passage in William Irwin Thompson. I think it was in uh, Imaginary Landscape where he talked about Videodrome in the back of the book, and I thought, well, I mean, if, if he regards this stuff, because I had been, ever since discovering Campbell and Spangler, I had become a bit of a snob about popular culture, even though I grew up on it. I sort of turned against it, uh, but it was Thompson's... Uh, taking it serious in books like The American Replacement of Nature, where he talks about Epcot Center and, and Disneyland. And I thought, well, I suppose you can do discourse on anything then. And so I thought, well, uh, let's look at these movies, um, treat them as myths, and uh, see what I can find out here. And, of course, Apocalypse Now and 2001 A Space Odyssey were the first two that I wrote about. And, uh, and I just went from there. Uh, looking for the myths of our time. And it seemed to me to be the case that um, the mythic method was something that was uh, a discovery of the modernists. And I think that was what McLuhan was all about, was his idea of discovering with Joyce and Wyndham Lewis and um, Ezra Pound and all these guys. But these guys figured out the mythic method. Um, but I think that died out in postmodern culture, in contemporary culture. It, it died out and it shifted over to popular culture. So popular culture with graphic novels and movies and even just, you know, bestseller airport novels, um, you're going to find all the myths there. And the population is getting the myths from those novels and from those films. And there's, as a result of that, there's a kind of superfluous nature to contemporary art and literature. It's a kind of a luxury, um, but it's not a necessity in the way that popular culture is because it provides us with our contemporary myths. Great. So uh, this is John LaBelle with uh, Visionaries, and our visionary guest for today is the cultural critic John David Ebert. And um, if you go to Amazon, you're going to find a long list of books, and we'll 
just get time to talk about a few of them, but just a bit more on uh, your book on movies, sailed heroes, and mechanical dragons. Um, what are the major archetypes that you found in our uh, contemporary movies? Uh, it seemed to me to be, um, the more I looked at them, that the, that the major archetype um, is the problem of technology, um, which is the reason why I called it celluloid heroes and mechanical dragons. It, it almost should have become celluloid heroes versus mechanical dragons, because I noticed again and again and again, um, if you think of films like The Terminator, let's say, or if you think of uh, the Star Wars films, and in particular, uh, Episode One, The Phantom Menace, with the armies of robots, you know, coming out of the, the pod there, row after row after row of them, bent on eliminating human beings. And I think the more I looked at it, and, the, you know, Videodrome is another example with David Cronenberg, uh, the more it seemed to me to be that we're having nightmares about our machines. Films are cultural dreams. They, they are the dreams that we're dreaming. Uh, we don't realize they're dreams. We think they come from the, uh, the intellect, but they don't. They come from the, the imagination. And it's a form of dreaming while you're awake. When you're in script writing mode, you're essentially dreaming while you're awake. And all sorts of material is going to come up that would not ordinarily come up, let's say, if you sat down to write a treatise on something. Um, and the, the myth of the machine, um, you know, that preoccupied people like Lewis Mumford and Marshall McLuhan, uh, seemed to be the problem. It seemed that to me that we're having nightmares about our mach our machines, and that um, there were certain um, uh, certain possible responses to them. Either the you know the machine could be rejected, as Tolkien rejects it completely in Lord of the Rings. Um, he just uh, he identifies uh, the bad guys, Saruman, and, and, and those people with the Industrial Revolution, and the good guys, the hobbits and the elves, with trees and woods and the agrarian world of farmers and light. And it's pretty clear which side he's on there. Right. Uh, but I think if you look at the Star Wars films, Lucas is absolutely enraptured with the possibilities of technology, even though he, he obviously sees it, that it's a problem. But it's a problem that he sees can be integrated. It doesn't have to be just uh, flushed. It can be integrated as long as there is some kind of a spiritual dimension, like as, you know, he's borrowed the samurai from Akira Kurosawa. So as long as there's some kind of a spiritual grounding first, uh, uh, a grounding in the, uh, in the psyche, um, so that the machine is not allowed to dictate to us. Uh, there's always a, a, a center, a basic center to the psyche uh, that the machine is not allowed to touch, and which is a spiritual nucleus that, that's within us. Um, I think uh, Lucas figured out the best solution to the problem. Interesting. So uh, we can accept the machines if we approach them from a spiritually grounded position. Right, Exactly. That was Lucas's solution, and it's the one that made the best sense to me. Right. Uh, because I myself like technology. I use it all the time, um, but it does trouble me, and it does stress me out, and uh, <laughs> right. I have a love-hate relationship with it, as, as I suspect does most of the population. But I am completely fascinated with it. I mean, who wants to just throw it out? We want to see what it can do. Um, now we have all these wonderful you know, iPads and iPhones and all these gadgets. I mean, they're amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what was the next book after that? 
that would have been uh, Dead Celebrities Living Icons, my book about uh, the, the culture of uh, celebrities. Yeah, that was really fascinating. I loved uh, your take on Marilyn Monroe. Um, so who were some of the celebrities you approached, and what did you learn from uh, their stories? Um, now, <clears throat> what happened was uh, um, I decided uh, that I, what I was going to do, the book was an accident. What I was going to do was write a sort of prequel to Celluloid Heroes and Mechanical Dragons, which picked up from 1968. Uh, 2001 is the earliest uh, film that I talk about in that book. But I became fascinated with these undying uh, sort of archetypes of popular culture like Tarzan and Conan the Barbarian and James Bond. I mean, we've got like 50 James Bond movies. Why do we keep remaking them? Right. Um, so what I wanted to do was write a prequel that looked at um, these sort of heroes, most of whom began in Pulp Fiction. Uh, Zorro goes back to, I think, something like 1912. Tarzan is about the same time. Um, and I wanted to uh, look at these heroes. Uh, so I wrote a few of those essays, but then it occurred to me that um, Elvis Presley is a type of American hero, uh, as a kind of undying type. Um, what is it about him that so fascinates people? He never fascinated me, but I wanted to know what people found fascinating about him. Mm. So I picked up Peter Guralnik's two-volume two, two biography of Elvis. Um, I thought it would be boring, and I finished it, both volumes, in about four days. It was absolutely riveting. I was completely riveted. Mm. I listened to the music as I went along, and I decided to write a chapter on Elvis Presley as uh, essentially the first, or one of the first celebrities to, uh, he's a televisual hero. He essentially has cloned an avatar of himself. Um, and one of the aphorisms that I had in my head as I was writing this book was McLuhan's aphorism that when you're on the air, you're out of your body. Hmm. That's one of his famous aphorisms. And I thought, well, yes, that's true. And what happens when you're out of your body on the air? There are certain dynamics that, that go on that don't happen when you're not on the air, when you're not plugged through an electronic circuit, whether it's radio or television, computer, whatever, whatever it be. And Elvis Presley was really the first televisual, almost the first televisual hero uh, who was a rock and roll man in 1956. He was on television something like 12 or 13 times, and that made his career, his television appearance. And um, then over time, you watch as he gets destabilized in the military. I think you know, when he went into the Army, he started popping pills, and when he came out, uh, he was popping pills on a regular basis, and it got worse and worse and worse over time. And I gradually began to realize that uh, Elvis Presley had been destabilized by his own image. His own image avatar actually had a detrimental effect, because it's almost like looking at yourself in a mirror uh, or pointing a camera uh, at a monitor that replicates itself, and you get electronic feedback. So what the celebrity is doing is creating electronic feedback, and it's distorting and confusing to his sense of self and they tend to turn to drugs and alcohol as a means of stabilizing or attempting to numb that sense of, who am I? Am I, the, am I the, this person, the three-dimensional flesh and blood Elvis Presley, or am I the, the person that everybody loves and sees on screen? 
and if I'm that person, then that's who everybody loves. Um, and what about me, the real Elvis? P- possibly no one loves me. You know, that Marilyn Monroe in particular got into that, that, that trap. And so uh, I moved on from Elvis Presley because I enjoyed writing that essay so much that I let uh, the superhero book go, and I decided to look at uh, the lives of Marilyn Monroe and James Dean as well and, and, and see... Uh, and then also John F. Kennedy, the first televisual president, uh, to, to see uh, if similar dynamics applied to them, and it, and it did in, in every case. And so the book uh, examines all of all of these individuals, Howard Hughes and Walt Disney and uh, the mega-famous. So, right down to Michael Jackson. In fact, uh, Michael Jackson died just as I was. Uh, I had the book at the at the publishers, and they insisted that I add a chapter on Michael Jackson yeah, uh, at the last moment, yeah. which I did, which I enjoyed writing very much. Uh, so this is John LaBelle. My guest today is John David Ebert, and this is Visionaries, where we talk to very interesting people, of whom Ebert is one. And Ebert, if you go to Amazon, you're going to see a lot of books by uh, Ebert. We'll get to a few more, but um, just uh, once more on dead celebrities, living icons, it's, I recommend that really strongly. It's such a beautiful book because you do such a great job of capturing the uh, humanity, pathos, and transcendent qualities of each of these icons that uh, you address. So for our listeners, uh, order that one right away. (laughs) And for, for the record, it was my favorite book to write out oh, of all great. the books I've ever written. And I've written 19 books now, working on a 20th. That still remains my favorite, and also the one that has sold the least. Oh, <laughs> let's so fix that. that. Everybody go out and order, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It'll make my publisher happy. Yeah. Um, so, um, what, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, we'll have uh, Ebert on again in the future, and he's uh, very strong on the French post-structuralist philosophers, but I want to put that uh, off for a discussion at another time and uh, stay with uh, this series of books on movies, etc. So after uh, Dead Celebrities, what was your next book? Uh, after Dead Celebrities, Living Icons, the next, uh, the next book was The New Media Invasion. And that one looks at, uh, uh, looks at what? Well, um, The New Media was uh, a book that came to me when I was thinking about, uh, this was in, uh, let's see, it was in 2000, 2009, I believe, was when I conceived it. I was uh, waiting for the publication of Dead Celebrities, which didn't come out until uh, 2010. But in 2009, um, all of a sudden I realized I was using all this new media, like Facebook and Twitter, and um, and I noticed uh, that Tower Records had closed. Mm-hmm. And that was a shocker to oh, me. Yeah. I went down <laughs> to my local Tower Records, and I, it was closed. And I, and I thought, well, that's incredible how can this be and 
the thought occurred to me that um, I wonder what McLuhan would have said about this new situation. How, how would he have handled this? And I thought, well, you know, I've, I've read a lot of McLuhan, and I've read a lot, not just McLuhan, but the whole field of media. Ibrahim, let, let me just interrupt. And for yeah. our younger audience members, uh, right. Marshall McLuhan is a, uh, a Canadian media critic who had written several books, but then in 1964, his book, Understanding Media, exploded onto uh, into the public consciousness. He talk of celebrities. He became a major uh, celebrity, and his what he had done was show how these different forms of media, for example, uh, the printing press versus television, uh, act as extensions of our physical and psychic bodies and change the way we perceive and interact with the world. That's right. That's exactly right. Perfect. So, so now we know who McLuhan is, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had, uh, I had a fascination with media studies, uh, and I decided uh, to investigate this matter uh, and take a look at why um, all of these stores were closing. And it wasn't just Tower. I realized I made the connection between the rise of iTunes and the shutting down of Tower. Um, and then um, I had gone to work already for a couple of different bookstores, only to find after I left that they, too, had closed because of competition from the Internet specifically from Amazon, but other sites, too, like Abe Books and so forth, uh, as competition for used books. And then I noticed magazines disappearing, like Gourmet Magazine disappeared. It was just gone. Playgirl Magazine uh, disappeared, gone. Um, and a whole bunch of magazines that had been around forever. Premier Magazine, which was the magazine that I had come to rely on for almost all my information about movies, gone. And uh, I gradually began to realize that the rise of the Internet, and I checked the timing on this, uh, it was turned over to the public in 1995, and by 2009, um, it basically was creating a, it, it, it was acting as a black hole that was sucking all of these media in, into it. And there was a media uh, extinction event that was going on. And I don't think that, uh, this is the difference between my book, The New Media Invasion, and, let's say, McLuhan's Understanding Media, uh, where Understanding Media is about, uh, it's a book about a Cambrian explosion of media. Uh, there were media, brand new media all over the place going on at that time, records and comic books, and um, he was talking about tape recorders and music uh, stereos, and just everything you could think of. And he was dealing with a plethora of media, whereas... What occurred to me was this sudden vanishing. And the aphorism that I had in mind for this book actually come, it came from Neil Postman. Neil Postman, who, who is one of the great media theoreticians who was influenced by Marshall McLuhan, where he said, and he tended to be, uh, he tended to point out the shadow side of technology. Uh, but his main aphorism is every time a new technology comes along, we have to ask, what world it's unmaking. Mm. What is it undoing? It gives us this new thing, yes, but it always undoes something. Just like, for example, when televisions came into bars, people stopped singing. They stopped singing in pubs. 
or when the gramophone first came along, uh, people stopped learning to play musical instruments as a basic part of their education. So there's always a, a deficit, a loss, a, a cultural tradition that disappears when a new medium comes along. And so the new media invasion basically was a study of all of these new media, uh, essentially digital in nature, all jacking in to the Internet in one way or another and watching all this other media go down the drain. Now, I will admit that at that point, when I wrote the book, um, I did not yet see all the new possibilities that were on the horizon that were coming that I explored immediately thereafterward. Uh, stuff like, you know, Google Play and, uh, you know, I pioneered the, the YouTube lecture on, you know, on any given philosopher. Um, all this new stuff, the do-it-yourself publishing, that I did not then see uh, at that point. So the book emphasizes the negative. Right. It emphasizes um, the negative side of, of the new media explosion. But like Postman used to say, the positive side is so evident, you know, that we, we tend never to add up the deficit and see, well, what are we willing to give up here? You know, How the, much of our culture do we want to give up and trade off for all this new stuff? Right. And um, so that's what that book was about. The the great uh, movie editor, Walter Murch, uh, described something that um, um, Bell Labs had sent him a tape in which there was a tone that went down. Beep. But it did. It was a loop. It did it continuously. Now, how could it do that? Because it would get so low, it would disappear. But what right. happened was, a it's always going down, but a new one keeps feeding in. And what happens uh. is, you don't hear the new one feeding in because it comes in very softly. So we're more aware of what disappears and less yeah. aware of the new because the new takes a while to sort of seep, you know, to become evident. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I, I did predict in that book, in the New Invasion, I did predict that borders would disappear, that Barnes & Noble would follow, and Barnes & Noble now is indeed in trouble. Mm. They've admitted that they're, 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 they may not be around too much longer. Um, and we're losing a lot of retail stores more and more. I think Macy's just shut another 100 stores down, Walmart 300 stores. Um, and so this, we haven't seen the full devastation effects of, of this, uh, you know, the, this media extinction event, uh, even though, you know, we are getting new gadgets like iPads and iPhones and, and this wonderful new world of jacking into uh, cyberspace and meeting people like, you know, I've met, I can't, say how many friends I've met from Facebook, even though my initial essay on Facebook in the new media invasion was negative, uh, I have since made so many friends from, from it that uh, now I have to say, you know, the essay was either half right or, or it was just plain wrong. Um, so listen, but, um, I have to make an observation. Uh, it's interesting that we would use a phrase like, the loss of Walmart is a devastation. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that in itself is problematic, isn't it? Well, it's just, you know, where we are when, you know, where Walmart was this thing that we didn't like because it was big and anonymous, and then we realize how incredibly convenient it is. 
and yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and and then it's well, we're going to you know like for example the, the particularly New York intellectuals were so anti Barnes and Noble because they had this fan- oh, sure. yeah they had this fantasy about their wonderful independent bookstores and they would be threatened and everything and Walmart I'm sorry Barnes and Noble was giving us sofas and huge selections and of books and you know uh and now we're realizing what we're losing. <laughs> right, right. Yep. So I they were just... like that in Berkeley when I was living in Berkeley too. They had to build. Uh, they had to build a. a uh, I think it was a Barnes and Noble, either a Barnes and Noble or a Walmart. They had to keep it secret all the way up <laughs> until the day of its unveiling uh, because of the anti-corporate uh, sentiment there. Right, right. Rather amusing. Oh, uh, listen, I have to, there's something I, I I missed and I have to go back to when we were talking about McLuhan. Um, <clears throat> most of our listeners have probably heard of McLuhan, but probably very few have read him. I'm noticing that all of my uh, young uh, professor colleagues have heard of McLuhan, but very few have read him. But if you want to understand uh, computers, the internet, and Facebook, it's all explained in McLuhan, despite the fact he wrote the book in 1964, 30 years before that stuff took place. <laughs> right. But he totally right. understood and explained them. <laughs> yeah. No, he nailed them. Yeah, he got it. Yeah. So and back, and back then, I, I recently reread Understanding Media, and I began to realize on this reading through that uh, the real problem was television. Television. If he he makes more references to television in that book, television altering the the whole landscape. Um, he, he says, for example, television was responsible for nearly killing off comic books in the 1950s. Mm. Uh, it was responsible for low theater attendance also in the 1950s. All, all this other stuff. And you began to realize, or I began to realize that, yeah, you know, he's responding to the, uh, the, the detrimental effects of television here, and you don't realize it until you read the whole book and read it carefully. It's sort of similar to what I was saying about the Internet. Although I'm now, you know, a thorough internet addict, I couldn't. I can't even imagine living my life without it. I mean, it's <laughs> so. <laughs> that's the way it goes. I yeah, guess, yeah. But the the other thing about McLuhan is how difficult the writing is. Uh, maybe not for you, but, but um, it's not easy reading. And I recall I used to uh, have to. Um, go to the library at school and wait about an hour for one of my colleagues before we would take off. And I would dig up a, a late 1960s issue of Esquire magazine, and there would be a 40,000-word article by um, by uh, Norman Mailer, page after page of pure type with no graphics whatsoever. And right. ba- back then we could read something like that. <laughs> but but <laughs> my poor students have such a hard time with McLuhan. It's just, you know, very difficult reading by today's standards. Yeah, I would make two, two suggestions, one of which I'm sure you'll agree with. That for anyone who wants to approach McLuhan for the first time, the medium is the massage is the best introduction. Absolutely. But it it's so clearly explains each of the ideas. Yes. Yes. I totally the, the agree. Other, 
But I, I think the other really good introduction was done by his daughter, Stephanie McLuhan. It's called Understanding Me. And what it is is she had access to an archive of his lectures. And so they're transcribed lectures, and they're much easier reading. Okay. Uh, they're, they're just very direct. He, he makes jokes all the way through. Uh, they're funny. They're direct. And um, that's the other book I would recommend. If right. those two books don't do it for you, then nothing will. Uh, I, but if they do, if if they do light your fire, I would I would go from there to then take on understanding media. Yeah. So um, we have a few more minutes, uh, John. What would you like to talk about that we haven't gotten to? Uh, that we haven't gotten to. Uh... Well, the next book after New Media Invasion uh, was The Age of Catastrophe, but maybe we should save that for next time because it's a, it's a considerably complex uh, book. Great, and it will um, also take us into uh, the French post-structures. Let's talk about your scene-by-scene uh, -scene books. Yeah, and uh, so 15 years later I find myself, you know, they say in astrology, whether you believe in it or not doesn't matter because the planet Saturn takes 29 years to go around the sun, whether you believe in it or not. <laughs> it's 29 years. Okay. Uh, and they say, every, you know, every 15 years, Saturn brings you back around to where you were 15 years ago. And I guess it's been 15 years, roughly, uh, thereabouts, since I wrote Cellulite Heroes and Mechanical Dragons. So now I find myself rewriting that book uh, as a series of books now. Uh, I'm working on the seventh one in the series, only now they're scene by scene. I started with Apocalypse Now, of course. Uh, Apocalypse Now, scene by scene. And then I did Alien scene by scene, Blade Runner scene by scene, Star Wars scene by scene, The Shining scene by scene, Videodrome scene by scene. And now um, I'm finishing up the series with 2001 A Space Odyssey scene by scene. And so it, these books are different from Celluloid Heroes and Mechanical Dragons in that uh, they, they go scene by scene. They're sort of a cross between uh, a novelization and a DVD commentary. I state what the scene is, and then I talk about the semiotics of the scene, uh, what, what the meanings of the scene are. Uh, after I, And those are all of, available on Amazon for anyone interested in them. They are being picked up now by film classes. Uh, Blade Runner is being taught at SUNY Broome Community College uh, this uh, semester. And uh, so they are slowly being picked up by the, by the academic world, which I'm, I'm proud of. Great. <laughs> and, and um, you know, um, Ebert's books are an education because <clears throat> in these scene-by-scene -scene books, you, he, he allows them, you, you allow yourself to sort of free associate with um, various references so that you'll bring in... Um, uh, other literary sources, uh, philosophical sources, and so it helps one sort of broaden one's thinking as well as prepare to rewatch the movie. Exactly, and ideally, uh, it, it prompts you to rewatch the movie, uh, to read the book and watch the movie. Or uh, watch it scene by scene, and, and and read the commentary, and go from there. Right. So they're not exactly film reviews, uh, because I'm not a I'm not a, a film reviewer. Um, I'm a little more literate than the average film critic. So th these are philosophical uh, analyses of, of these films, um, and, and they they get quite in intricate. So great. 
So we're running out of time, so there's a bunch of things I have to mention. So if you for example, if you're gonna re if you're gonna rewatch Apocalypse Now, first you wanna read um what's Conrad's book? Joseph uh, Conrad. I'm sorry, what? Uh, yeah, Heart of Darkness. You want to That's read right. Heart of Darkness, then read um, John David Ebert's Apocalypse Now, scene by scene, and then watch the movie. <laughs> there you go. And there you have a, a really rich education. Next thing yeah. I want to say is that I've had the great pleasure of uh, collaborating with John David Ebert on a website yeah. called uh, cinemadiscourse.com. So we recommend that. And then also <clears throat> you can click from there to uh, Ebert's site, culturaldiscourse.com. And then, uh, John, where do they go for catching your podcasts, etc.? Uh, the podcast has its own page on Facebook. It's just called the Decline of the West Podcast. Great, um, and so it, it's it's got its own Facebook page. And then there you'll find lectures by Ebert on uh, cultural discourse over on the left. You can click on them, covering various philosophers, etc. So. Just do some uh, hunting around on that thing that we've been talking about, the Internet, and John David <laughs> Ebert, no uh, no right. relation to the uh, late film critic, but no. also a commentator on film. So thank you for being... Uh, a very good one, actually. He yeah, was he was the, at, the one person yeah. you could really get an intelligent review from. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Yeah, so thank you, and we look forward to uh, uh, talking with John David Ebert again in the future. I look forward to coming back. Thanks, John, for having me. Bye-bye.